Let me invite you to turn, if you would, in the Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. You'll find it on page 1178 of the Pew Bible if you're using that, 1178. And we'll be looking this morning at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, but especially verse 1. Today, we come once again to the pastoral epistles, which uh, you might remember that includes 1 and 2 Timothy and the letter to Titus. They're called the pastoral epistles because unlike Paul's other letters, they're not written to a church, but to two individuals working in ministry. Although Timothy and Titus are not exactly what we would call pastors today, the church has long recognized here the roots for pastoral ministry. In our study so far, we've seen some of that ministry take shape. Paul calls Timothy in the first chapter to silence the false teachers in the Ephesian church. Then beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, he calls on Timothy to bring order to the worship, order to the worship of the congregation. The people have fallen into bad and really dangerous habits. They no longer are praying for the wider world or for those in authority over them. And they use worship as a time to show off their clothing or air their angry disagreements. Paul wants all this stopped and decency and order brought back into the corporate worship life of Christ's church. Over the past few weeks, and in keeping especially with 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, we've seen how Paul calls for love and order in the way men and women relate to each other in the church. Paul forbids women from holding authoritative teaching roles in the church, not because they are unable or inferior, but because Paul knows this goes against God's calling on their lives. But all this can leave us wondering, if not the women of the church, who is to lead? Who is to lead? When Timothy eventually uh, leaves, who will shepherd this congregation, ensuring that it does not drift right back into trouble? The answer Paul gives, as John Calvin notes, is one that should encourage the women of the congregation. Paul's answer, says Calvin, is not, it's not, all men will automatically, by virtue of just being male, become the spiritual leaders. If Paul had said that, then being male and being a Christian would be the only qualifications. And Calvin notes how this could leave the women of the church quite discouraged, while at the same time empowering any man to grasp leadership. Instead, though, Paul makes it clear that we are to look for certain men, Men that God is calling to have this authority, even as Moses sought out Joshua. As Paul says here and in several other places, Jesus has equipped the whole church with the Holy Spirit. The entire church, the entire body, young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile, all of it is part of God's plan. We are all to do the work of God in the world, in the family, and even here with each other. Every Christian, every Christian 
shares in what theologians call the general office of the church, the general office of the church. Every believer is called to practice a life of ministry and purpose. However, however, and Paul doesn't see a contradiction here, and we shouldn't either, there are men who are to be marked out and ordained for specific offices in the church. Some of those specific offices are now closed. The office of apostle and prophet were foundational, according to the book of Ephesians, and are now closed. These extraordinary offices produced the word of God, and the men who held these extraordinary offices received direct callings from God, as when Isaiah, at his calling, entered the temple in heaven and was touched with a coal of fire, or when Jesus met and arrested Paul on the road to Damascus. But what about today? Are there still offices in the church, beside the general office we all share, are there still offices in the church to be filled? In our text today, Paul introduces us to one of these ongoing offices. Literally, in the Greek, it is called here the office of bishop. So let's read together. Please stand. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop or overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you and praise you that from the very beginning of time, you have preserved your church in the world. You founded your church in Adam and Eve when you gave them a promise in Genesis 3.15. You taught them the sacrifices and how to pray, and they passed this on to Noah and then to Abraham and his descendants and Moses and David and the prophets and now to us through Christ. And in every age of your church, Father, you have ordained men to lead your church as faithful shepherds. We pray this day that you would show to us in your word your plan for that and that you would open our hearts to receive it with joy and that you would bless us together as a flock. For we pray and ask this in the name of the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Looking at God's word together now, I think you can see right away that in this section, Paul's longest section on church officers, 
Paul is mostly concerned, chiefly concerned, with character, not charisma. With character, not so much giftedness. He doesn't explain what a bishop does. He probably didn't have to because Timothy had been his spiritual son and his ministry partner for many years. But I also think there's another lesson here that we will return to again next week. Simply put, brothers and sisters, no amount of good organization, no amount of good organization can overcome immoral leaders in the life of the church. No amount of good organization, confessions, books of church order, no amount of good organization can overcome in the end immoral, ungodly leaders in the life of the church. Church government is not just about having the right system. It's about how that system is executed And that is why Paul puts such emphasis on the character of the officers in the church. Every faithful church officer should readily admit, and I hope our deacons and elders do, we should readily admit and repeat that the biggest challenge and threat to ministry in the church is never the people of the church. Rather, it is his own sinful heart. The real adventure of ordained office, as again, I hope all our officers would say, the real adventure of ordained office is the intense spiritual warfare it creates and promotes in your life. But that will be our focus next week. Today, I want to set the table for that discussion by considering with you just this opening verse, verse 1. Paul writes in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. To get at that verse a little with you, I want to ask and answer three questions this morning. First, what does this verse tell us about Christ's church? What does it tell us about Christ's church? Second, what is a bishop or overseer according to scripture? And lastly, as always, why should we care today? Why is this important? So first of all, brothers and sisters, what does this verse tell us about the church of Jesus Christ? I think this verse gives us an important window into what the church is, what God wants it to be. What I mean is that this first verse assumes, it assumes that the church is what we would call today an institution, Now, it's not just an institution. It's not just that. It's more than that. There are deep spiritual things going on in every true church. In fact, there's more probably going on right now in this room than you can see or than some of you are even aware of. However, none of that can eclipse the reality brought to us in this verse and many others. The church is an institution. By that, I mean that Jesus and the apostles clearly intended to set up a network of believing congregations that would practice mutual submission and good order. So, for example, in Acts 15, we read about the church's first general assembly. Elders and apostles met, they made doctrinal statements and decisions, and they published those statements 
for the whole church. Or we could look through the whole of the history of the book of Acts and see how Paul, whenever a church is founded, calls for the identification and ordination of men to offices in the church. So, for example, just one of many, have you ever noticed how Paul begins the letter to the Philippians? He writes, quote, from Paul and Timothy to all the saints with the overseers and deacons. That one verse captures so much. All believers are saints. Paul says to all the saints, the whole church, not just special believers, all Christians are saints. But not all Christians are bishops and deacons. So Paul writes to all the saints with their bishops and their deacons. He also calls on the members of the church throughout his letters to submit to these leaders in the Lord. Again, notice that there is an undeniable institutional element here. In Paul's very first recorded letter, 1 Thessalonians, he writes this, quote, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And the author of Hebrews adds this, quote, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Here's the point once again. The church of Jesus Christ is more than an institution. It is a spiritual, eternal reality. However, it is not less than an institution. It was organized. Something that has officers, something that has practices like baptism and the Lord's Supper, has to be seen as a God-given institution. Now, because we are Americans, it's very easy for us to be suspicious of institutions or even to bristle at that word as if it was a kind of insult. But the New Testament and the whole history of the church make it clear that God intended the church to operate, yes, with great freedom, but also with certain structures and traditions. The Lord's Supper we're about to keep is a witness to this reality. I hope even this brief survey can keep you then, can keep you from saying the really silly things many are saying today. Some like to say, I love Jesus, but I just don't care about the church. Or they will say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in organized religion. They may even say, I believe in Christianity, not churchianity. But every true Christian needs to realize that their faith is tied to Christ's church, an institution that Jesus established through the 12 apostles and which they worked tirelessly to develop and extend. Even if you came to Christ, even if you came to Christ in private while reading the Bible, you must remember that your faith is part of the church's story. The reformers died so that you could have that Bible and read it. And before the reformers, great men and women of the church sacrificed everything to preserve and advance the gospel to your ancestors. 
We are not the islands we imagine ourselves to be. And these verses put us up against that truth. James Bannerman wrote one of the greatest books on the doctrine of the church. It may be the book on the doctrine of the church for Bible-believing Christians. In it, he points out that the church is not, is not a voluntary organization. What does that mean? Well, in a voluntary organization, the members of the organization have the right to come and go as they please. And they have the right to set the mission and the rules for their group. But, says Bannerman, quote, the source of the church's life and authority is from without, not from within. And the church of Christ confers upon its members. It gives to its members, but does not receive from them the privileges peculiar to it as a society. In other words, the church does not become the church because I decide to recognize it, nor are the members authorized to shape it to their culture or value or taste. Rather, says Bannerman, the church is God's church. He calls it, quote, a positive institution of God. So the confession, the doctrine, and the organization of the church is not up to us. Jesus is the church's only ruler, and he alone through scripture can dictate its confession in life. Our only mission is to acknowledge and obey what God has made. In simple terms, the church is an organization, but it's God's organization not one of our own making. And you see how that first verse gives us a window into that, that the church is an organization with officers and order. Second of all, second of all, we're going to ask the question, what is the office of bishop exactly? Paul says, if anyone desires to be a bishop, he desires a noble task. But what is a bishop? The word here in Greek is episkopos, as in Episcopalian, that is a denomination ruled by bishops, sometimes called Anglican. And this would be true in Roman Catholicism as well. In English, it can be translated, it's translated here in the ESV, overseer, but bishop is just as accurate. The word literally means to watch over something, to care for it. We will explore this more next time. We're going to talk about exactly what it means but for now, I just want to point out two things very quickly. First, this office of bishop is used in the New Testament interchangeably with the office of elder. They're not two different offices. The word is used for elders. And second, that it is one of two ongoing offices in the church today. So first, the word bishop is used in the New Testament interchangeably with the word elder. Strictly speaking, as far as the New Testament is concerned, we're not talking about another office. Bishops are simply elders. We see this again and again in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 5, listen to what Peter says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising episkopos, oversight, bishopric, 
not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Here in this section, you have all three words, pastor, elder, and bishop, and they're used interchangeably of one set of men. And notice that Peter even considers himself an elder. Of course, he is also an apostle, so he adds, I was an eyewitness of the sufferings, and I partook of the glory of the world to come. He means there that he was present at the transfiguration and saw the glory of the world to come. He's an eyewitness. He's an apostle. But that apostolic office did not stop him from identifying with the big overall office of an elder. The apostle John does the same thing, beginning two of his three letters, second and third John, by calling himself the elder or an elder. Paul makes the same point in Titus. In Titus 1, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writes, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. For an overseer, a bishop, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. In fact, this is so clear, this, this reality that elder and bishop are the same office, that many, many Catholic and uh, Anglican scholars fully admit that this is true in the New Testament. The office of bishop is the office of elder. So what happened then? How did we end up with men wearing pointy hats and overseeing large numbers of congregations as princes of the church? Now, to be fair to people in the Roman Catholic Church and in Anglicanism and in other bishop-led churches like the Methodist Church, we should admit, we should admit that the tradition of bishops, the tradition of bishops is one of the earliest teachings of the early church. Ignatius, Ignatius, Father Ignatius, just a few decades after the death of John the Apostle, so just briefly after the time of the apostles, taught this pattern of church government. Bishop, elder, and deacon, three offices, is what he taught. And so many of the greatest Christian writers and martyrs followed that pattern. We can also acknowledge that Titus did operate over multiple congregations, as we see when we get to his letter. So although the New Testament does not directly teach this model, the church, when it did this, was not completely out to lunch. I think it's also important to admit that it would have been incredibly difficult not to have some kind of bishop system in the early church. This month, our denomination of 1,500 churches in the United States will meet. Elders will travel swiftly and safely by car and plane with comfortable and safe hotels to stay in. In the early church, this would have been impossible. So we can see how a church made up of thousands of congregations in many countries might need some kind of system like this. And we can at least sympathize. However, none of this can change the scriptural truth that bishop does not constitute a unique office in the New Testament itself. It is used interchangeably with elder and pastor. And one has to wonder, one has to wonder about the danger of appointing bishops over whole sections of the church. It almost seems inevitable that one day one of the bishops 
will no longer be content with being a prince of the church and will want to be a king of the church, or better yet, an emperor. And in sad fact, that is exactly what happened to the Bishop of Rome. Next week, Lord willing, we will explore the biblical teaching about this office more fully. It is an office deeply rooted in the Bible and in God's own character. But for today, for today, we simply note that it is, in essence, the office of elder, and that Paul appointed such bishops in all the churches. Maybe no passage is more relevant here than the text of Acts 20, 17 through 38. We've looked at this before. Paul calls the Ephesian elders together, the elders of this church, to meet with him. And this is what he says, quote, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And that passage, that threat of false teaching, really leads us to our last question. First, we see how this verse gives us a window into what the church really is. Second, what is the office of bishop? It really is the office of elder. And thirdly, lastly, why should we care? Why should we care? Well, first and foremost, we should care, brothers and sisters, and care deeply about this because Christ has says, said that this is what he wants and the church belongs to him. And that's enough. We belong to him. Those of us who have been crucified with Christ no longer live for ourselves or belong to ourselves. This may sound like slavery if you're not a Christian, but it's, it's really liberty. Slavery was the old days, the days when I belonged only to myself and was a slave to myself. My only allegiance was my petrified little kingdom of self. But the church and all its members are finally set free to be who they were meant to be, followers of God through Christ, a new creation of God and his spirit. Bishops are part of God's plan for us to walk in that newness as a family and as an institution. But we can add another reason, a more specific reason to take all this seriously. The New Testament constantly warns us that this age, the age between the first coming and second coming of Christ, this age is especially going to be marked by false teaching. John says it. Peter says it. Jude says it. Paul says it again and again that a defining, a defining characteristic of this period will be people wandering away from the truth, false teaching. And this was Paul's whole point when in Acts 20, he gathered the elders from this very church. He says, Bishop the church, because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in. And he says, even among you, some will rise up. And notice in our text, 1 Timothy 3, that immediately after giving instructions for deacons and elders, what does Paul write in chapter 4, verse 1? Look over one verse, one chapter. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit expressly says what? That in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits 
and teachings of demons. Every Christian here needs to take this chapter, chapter 3, seriously. Every Christian here needs to take the government and structure of the church seriously. You cannot and you must not yawn and leave this to others. To do so is not to take seriously something that God says matters to him. And it is to misunderstand the times you live in and ignore one of, if not the most repeated warning in all of scripture. As I was preparing for this sermon, I came just by God's providence to the website of a church in our region. I spent some time on the church website and could not find anywhere on it, though there was tons of information, not one word about what they believed, what their doctrinal standards were, or who even held office in the church, or who they affiliated, not one word about any of these things. Brothers and sisters, we cannot live like that. If we live like that, there will be no church here for our children. There must be a concern among the members of the church for what these offices mean and who holds them. As we will see throughout our study, these offices have been instituted by Christ to guard the church from total destruction. That's what's at stake here. Remember, brothers and sisters, that from the beginning, from the very day one, Satan has tried to get control of the message. He preached false doctrine to Eve. It's a sermon. Go read it. And he persuaded her. Our world, the world we're living in, is the product of heresy. Our first mother was a heretic, and our first father was an apostate. When you really get that, when that really hits home with you, you will begin to understand why Paul wrote so many letters and why he worked so hard to develop and install local elders in every New Testament church. He was trying by God's spirit to build a wall. And this is why we have to care, every one of us, about the process, about the institution, about its long-term faithfulness and its long-term existence. To care about the church and its government is to love and care for your kids and for their kids. More importantly, it is to align your heart with the heart of Christ. For he loves his church and gave himself for her. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for our Savior and his love for the church and how he even now defends her from heaven and how he even now meets with us in the Lord's Supper. As we transition to this supper, we're reminded, Father, that we stand in a long line of faithful believers who have kept this meal and have kept this tradition as it has been handed down to us in Holy Scripture. We pray now that all the blessings that have been poured out on those who came before us would now be poured out here, and that we would, in faithfulness and integrity as a body, keep this meal. Use it to strengthen then our faith, to bind us together, and to lead us to Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.